Man, I'm having so much fun. This is a $1.6 trillion industry. I'm talking about the food and beverage space. If you're not having fun, you're in the wrong place. Yes, it's hard work, but my gosh, the companies, the brands, the flavors, the experiences, the missions, it's fantastic. But some of the brands are different, better, and special. They're the ones who are able to really compete and vie for customer loyalty. Look, I know you want to make your brand different, better, and special. I know you yourself want to be different, better, and special. That's my mission. That's why you're here. Join me on this journey as I interview CEOs and founders from all the different companies within the food and beverage industry so we can discover what they're doing so we can take that information back, digest it, and become better ourselves and to help our companies take on different strategies, pick the right technology, pick the right partners. And of course, you got to have great tasting food. You got to have great tasting beverages, packaged goods. If it doesn't taste good, you're lost. I'm sorry. You're going to lose millions. If you're new here, take the five episode challenge. Go back, pick out some brands and CEOs, some topics. If you love the content, subscribe. You're going to find it on every podcast platform once or twice a week. But I also publish them on LinkedIn because that's where we kind of hang out. So when you see it on LinkedIn, stop by, make a comment, share it back into your food and beverage network. I would appreciate it. The brands would appreciate it. To all my loyal listeners, thank you so much. You guys are awesome. Thank you for being with me on this journey. Thanks for coming along on this mission for the past two years. If you are considering a strategic job change, message me. Let's have a confidential conversation. If your brand is growing and you need to attract experts, you also need to contact me because I have created a different, better, and special recruiting system. I promise you, no other search firm in America is doing that. Who am I? I'm Tony Moore. I'm an expert food and beverage headhunter, semi-professional podcaster, and I'm here each and every week. Stay tuned for this week's episode. That's what, yeah, this is what I like. I like people who can just wing it. Yeah. That's... My staff doesn't like that because, you know, I've taken the Clifton Strengths Finder and it's very apparent that uh, my first one is activator, second one, ideation, third one, adaptability. So I am literally the perfect person to throw out in front of people and <laughs> just figure it out. Yeah. Liner, um, I took it recently too. What was it? It was strategy. Number one, ideation. Two, um, individualization. And I can't remember the other one, but it was very obviously correct. <laughs> it was like, if you've ever met me, it's like, yep. yep ding, ding, ding. Yep. <laughs> We're in a $1.6 trillion industry from the best that I can figure out. And there's just so much in this industry to unpack. And so, what I, what I, what I look for, I look for experts, I look for different people to come in and help us unpack it, to take different angles and different viewpoints. And I think what attracted me to you know, want to talk with you, Liz, was just kind of your this the, the way you've positioned yourself, uh, a fractional strategy officer, food futurist, um, innovation strategy leader, uh, advising at the intersection of food and beverage and technology. These are all the concerns and 
you know, kind of topics that are kind of underlying a lot of these food and beverage brands that I speak to is I try to uncover this, you know, um, kind of my mission is like, you know, what makes them different, better and special. Mm-hmm. And what I want to do for people, because I, I, I have a feeling that you and I are going to be doing some different podcasts from time to time. What I want to do, if I can get to your experience here on LinkedIn, I'm going to kind of walk through a little bit of your background so people understand kind of where you're coming from. I mean, I know you're you're a Nittany, a Nittany Lion and then you, uh, Florida Institute, what is it, FIU? FIU, yeah. And then, of course, the Culinary Institute. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to do dates. The first thing okay. you need to know, Liz, we never date ourselves. Because I am old. We don't want to do dates. We don't know. We see you've already done that. We don't, we don't, we're wisdom. We have wisdom. Age, like a fine wine, yes. <laughs> so Liz Moscow... Uh, you started as a chef owner. So you literally at 23 years old became a restaurant owner. Yeah. Like a lot of 23 year olds, you think, you know, everything right. Right out of the gate, uh, graduated culinary school, started working briefly in the food industry and restaurants and realized I don't need other people to abuse me. <laughs> I can abuse myself. Uh, and then purchased a restaurant. Uh, my boyfriend at the time, we graduated with CIA together. He was hot, hot-headed chef, more than any hot-headed chef I've ever met, which both uh, attracted and repelled me at the same time. And we opened a business together. It was an existing business that was failing. And two, a couple had purchased a, a 10-year-old successful neighborhood restaurant in Boca Raton, Florida. And they thought, like a lot of people who have no shops in the restaurant business or culinary training, that owning a restaurant would be, and I quote, fun. And it's like a hobby. Mindless, let's let's just right? run a restaurant. It, it can be fun, right? It, it can also be extremely difficult and challenging and uh, become your entire world very quickly. And in the nine months that they had owned it, uh, it started going quickly downhill. Um, they put it back on the market after they realized there was no fun to be had for them. And uh, at the time when I was 23, young and dumb, I like to say, full of piss and vinegar, right? Um, I, I used to save things. I worked at an animal shelter. I, some might say I saved my first boyfriend from whatever ailment I had deemed he had. And so it was a failing restaurant. So I was going to save it. I was determined to save it. And so despite not actually wanting to own a restaurant, that was my, my flag in the my, my, my stake in the ground at the time, I graduated from college school. I didn't want to own a restaurant. And then, you know, within a year after graduating, uh, I was the proud owner of a restaurant. So that's how that happened. Yes. Well, and that's, that's a huge move. So I just, the reason I want people to understand that is that this is really kind of your origin story. Now I'm going to leap forward a little bit, uh, journalist, restaurant and dining critic, food, travel and adventure writing. Uh, I find that kind of, fascinating uh, as you were creating uh, columns, you know, highlighting America's foodiest towns. That sounds like a really, really fun way to uh, make a living or maybe scrape a living scrape together. Scrape a living is more like it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, get a couple of free meals and scrape a living. Uh, at the time, um, when I was writing for the Boulder Daily Camera, or how I got the job at the Boulder Daily Camera, I was putting together a startup uh, in the cosmetic business, I invented a, a package play, um, which ultimately became Bomb Chicky Bomb Bomb, which was on Shark Tank. And that's another episode for us to talk about at some point. Um, 
I was working on my startup and I was writing for the paper and, and on the side. They found me actually, I always liked to write, uh, pride myself on being a good writer, a good marketer. Um, and somebody who just had ideas that followed through with those fun ideas. And I had this crazy idea back in the day to start a blog when people actually read blogs right now or on podcasts. But when people read blogs, uh, I had this fun idea to go uh, post on Craigslist. So people were using Craigslist uh, that a, a part, you know, a, a successful professional chef wanted to come cook for you in your home for free. All you had to do was respond to this Craigslist ad um, and I would show up and make them dinner out of whatever they happen to have in their house. Uh, and the name of the blog was called Stranger Than Kitchen. It was my idea to sort of write about this sociolo sociological experiment combined with cooking and recipe development. And it was fun. It was a fun side project. I had no plan for it. I didn't understand how to potentially monetize it. I, it was just a project I was doing for fun. And it started getting some sort of uh, fun little cult following in Boulder because people obviously wanted a you know, professional chef to come cook for them in their home for free. And I wrote about the recipes I created out of nothing, pantries that literally had almost like an onion, maybe some dried pasta in the back of their pantry. What, what would I make out of their, their meal? And then it was sort of a sociological story of who would invite a stranger into their home. And the Boulder Daily Camera saw this somehow. And they said, hey, we have an opening for a food critic. You seem like a fun writer with fun with an interesting story, fun flair. You want to be a food critic? And I was like, yes. Who wouldn't want to be a food critic? And I did that for uh, a little over two years. Super fun. Enjoyed it. Unfortunately, it was in Boulder, which is a very small town at the time. It did not experience the growth it has now. And it does have a limited set of restaurants. And as you can imagine, only some of those are inspiring of good you know, writing and fodder. So you <laughs> so had a limited runway. You had yeah, a limited... There's only so many words for the, the, you know, only so many synonyms for the word fine or okay that I could keep coming up with. And so, uh, yeah, kind of outlived its, its, its purpose, yes. but a very clever, um, clever idea to, to try that social experiment. Yeah. Uh, and may, look, maybe we will go into, um, bomb chicky a little bit because, uh, again, this is kind of on your LinkedIn profile. People can read a little bit more about it, but you debuted, uh, back in 2015 on uh, shark tank. Yes both the thorn on the side and a point of pride, depending on the day. Uh, it's still, uh, you could still catch the episodes on CNBC. They like to repeat it over and over. To this day, uh, I get text messages from random people in my life, uh, high school people I haven't spoken to in, you know, 30 years. <laughs> I just saw you on Shark Tank. And it's just, oh, the episode will not die. You know, it will not die. When you say that bomb chicka bomb bomb, I do remember that, but I don't remember the episode. I don't remember what happened. Was it was it a terrifying experience? Did it did it go well, or I don't? What was the result? Uh, you know, there's a lot of definitions of go well. It was ultimately successful for the brand, and if you ask me, would I do it over again? Yes, but it was very traumatic. The way that they set up production and filming of the of the show is designed to make you feel stress. Right. And to put you on the spot. So that yep. a lot of bright time. lights, you're sweating, you're standing. I, I've heard some nightmare stories. Yeah, uh, I can't go into it too much. I did sign an NDA, but it was, it was not an ideal experience. Yep, yep. Uh, but ultimately, what we got out of it was a great six million dollar commercial. Uh, we were able to then get onto the shelves at Target, become a successful, viable product. We did not get an investment. 
most of the sharks uh, did not like it the way that it was edited really took away from our actual pitch. We were pitching the, uh, we were really pitching was the, the packaging play. I was into packaging way back then. How do you add value through packaging? How do you change up lip balm packaging? And we wanted to license this proprietary tube technology we'd come up with. And ultimately what they were interested in was, you know, the bomb, cheeky bomb, bomb brand name, because who wouldn't be interested in seven very, very cheeky and clever. Right. And so the, you know, they, they played on that and how it was sort of a limited, uh, brand that should be targeted sort of in the adult space and they passed, but ultimately, you know, we did get it into target, which is not known to be an adult store. <laughs> so, uh, it, it was a good experience, got a lot of brand recognition and awareness, but, and it was a great opportunity. If you can get on shark tank, do it. Yeah. And I've actually, I've had a few people on and I've got some more that are coming. It just so happens that they were on, um, I don't, I don't seek that out, but it's kind of a, oh, it's kind of a fun story and people, you know, they love Shark Tank. So it's kind of fun for them to hear, yeah, you know, what that experience was like. Um, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. So uh, now you're an advisor for food uh, AI, oh, it's food AI strategy advisor. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is really an area that I, I, I'm really interested in because everyone is trying to predict you know, consumer taste and food trends. And I mean, who wouldn't want to know what was coming? I mean, these companies spend millions of dollars in R&D and in formulation. So if there's a way that, you know, you can provide insights, right? Yep. That's, it's kind of a no brainer. So that's really what kind of began to really kind of pique my interest in having you come on and, and kind of okay. chat with us. So Spoonshot's a great story. So I am involved and have been involved with Techstars. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Techstars. Yeah, yeah Techstars, yeah. sure. Um, but for people who don't know Techstars, um, tell them about just the high level kind of, you know, food incubation and, and kind of how difficult it is to get into the program. Yeah, Techstars is one of the OG sort of tech incubators, right? They started in Boulder. I think they're all around the world now. And they find companies that have ideas and they surround the, the, the typically young founders with resources and ideas and training on how to pitch and get funding. And they take a small piece of uh, their uh, take equity Low and equity, yep, these makes companies sense, of course. grow, right? And they did uh, open a Techstars uh, food arm uh, in Minnesota, Minneapolis, um, this was back, I don't remember was what year this was, maybe five years, six years ago. Um, and I was a culinary strategy director at the time for a consulting group out of Boulder. And I was traveling to Minnesota for a client. I don't remember which client it was off the top of my head. And I got contacted by, um, a colleague friend of mine who is a Techstars mentor in Boulder telling me that there's a company in the Techstars food program in Minneapolis that's right up my alley as someone who'd been a trend forecaster and sort of at the cutting edge of trends in food, that it was an AI of a platform, services software platform that was trying to basically um, create a technology around what it is that I was doing. Right. As a person, right. Cultivating trends, understanding trends, figuring out and predicting trends. And so I happened to be there. The founder is from India. 
really nice gentleman, very intelligent gentleman named Kishin Vasani. And worlds collided. I happened to have a free evening to meet with him and discuss his company and became sort of a mentor to him while he was going through the tech stores program. Fast forward, he emerged from the Techstars program, set up his operations down in Bangalore, India. Um, he's actually from the UK, but set, moved his family to India. His team is Indian, and I stayed on as an advisor, and that role has grown. And it's funny because in our first conversation um, in Minneapolis uh, over pizza one night, I was basically unconvinced that software could do what it is that I did, Right. I didn't, I didn't doubt that AI, artificial intelligence, can comb through thousands and thousands and millions of pieces of data and research papers and uh, sales data and come up with uh, data that justifies trends. But the piece that I was very skeptical, I'm still to some degree I'm skeptical of, and I do believe they still need people like me advising their company, is yes, you have the data. Yes, you can uncover the tidbits of information. But Who's translating that data into real actionable insights and what do they mean? And so we created this great uh, partnership, the two of us, where I help advise them. I actually had a call with them this morning. We were talking about what the trends are, what they should be, how do we frame them from what they've uncovered for the next year. And they're growing and have gotten funding. And now they position themselves to sell towards a lot of the CPG companies to help them predict trends. Um, so that they can capitalize on them for product development. And it's been a great partnership. Wow. I mean, that is, that's really fascinating. So we're going to be able to, you know, chat more about that. That kind of takes us to, I think the big question is where, where would you say your real expertise is or categorize it if you would? Uh, yeah. My superpower, I, I believe. Yeah. I love using that word. Yeah. So yes. What is your superpower? <laughs> Had you asked me this question probably 10 years ago, I would say that I felt like someone who was very fragmented and had a, ver a very disjointed background that was someone who just followed their passions and did what they felt like in the moment. But if you put that backward looking lens on my career and my choices, it really becomes clear that, yes, I follow what, uh, what's exciting to me at the time and learn as much as I can about it. But the, the common thread and what ties it together and what makes me very good at what I do now is I'm a connector, not just of people, but of information. And I, if, I liken it to becoming a holistic practitioner in health as opposed to someone who just specializes in, say, cardiology, right? Uh, I, I see the whole picture, right? And what's, what's starting to emerge, right? If, if you look at my background, it was in cooking and the fundamentals of food. Then it was in entrepreneurialism. Then it was in health and wellness. I owned a yoga studio. And then it was in CPG brand creation and marketing. And so I look at not only the food landscape through the food lens, but from the customer service lens, the integration with tech lens, the enablement of that product to the end consumer, and ultimately through a hospitality lens. And there's very few people out there who have the left brain and right brain and full, complete understanding that food is not just a widget. It's a very unique um, segment. So what I say in my LinkedIn profile, what are the, a lot of the work that I do, do as a fractional strategy uh, advisor is 
people are looking at it very one-dimensionally. A cardiologist is looking at the heart. The tech people are looking at the tech, um, but they need to look at the whole hospitality landscape and how their tech integrates into that, not only for the operators that they're hoping will uh, use their technology, whether that service is a software like Spoonshot or whether it's a virtual kitchen concept from someone, say, virtual dining concepts, right? They have to understand the entire landscape and know that you can't just implement a virtual brand or take on a SaaS platform and expect people to just use it. You have to understand the whole ecosystem, what's happening within the food industry and within a restaurant, within a CPG company to understand what's going to happen with that product development or that menu recipe development or that virtual kitchen brand or the customer experience. And I like to say that I'm that connector that understands all the pieces. And I also am very good at seeing things very quickly and connecting dots, which is why I'm a good right now extemporaneous speaker, because I see the, the whole landscape and right. able to bring it together very quickly. When do food brands or restaurants come to the realization that they need your help? Is there a certain stage they get to or is it cyclical? Do they need you at this point and then they go away for a while and then they come back? What's the life cycle of when they need help? Yeah. Typically when they're outside of their comfort zone. Um, and, and that's when it's typically interfacing with technology, right? Rest the restaurant people tend to be very tactical, very understanding of business and hospitality, very understanding of how their business works internally, um, standard operating procedures, um, and the brass tacks of running restaurants. What they don't necessarily understand, and, and I don't even think it's an understanding, it's what they don't have time for, right? If you've ever worked in a restaurant, um, uh, what they don't have time for is to learn new software, to wrap their head around new paradigms happening in the industry because ultimately their freezer just went down or two yeah, people they're too, off the job. They're too or, tactical, right? They're, they're, <laughs> there's always they got a supply something. chain they got to worry about. You know, they got to right. worry about. Uh, and, and, and so while I do work with some of the restaurants in general as clients, helping them right now, most of my restaurant work is helping them translate their brand into the virtual space, how to, how to, take their larger in, in, uh, on-premise dining menus, translate them for the digital delivery space and help them create their digital menu or, or offshoots and digital brands that they want to service in the back of their house that don't align with their current brand, but align with their current operations. And mostly what I'm really doing is teaching the companies that want to interface with restaurants how to approach, talk to, and understand the needs of restaurants, right? And the, one of my former clients who shall remain nameless services a software company, thinks they have all the solutions that restaurants need if they can only get them to respond, right? Cold calling these people and they're bombarding them with emails and they have young junior people trying to hit enterprise restaurant clients and they think that they're going to respond and they don't understand why and they're putting them off because they're not following protocol and the young employees at this company think that they're very scrappy, but they don't realize that you can't send a scrappy on, on, uh, you can't send a junior person in to, to handle those kind of complex discussions. They don't, they don't, they're not seeing eye to eye with that operator. Right. 
And it's also a generational problem. A lot of the a lot of the enterprise restaurants mm. are run by either boomers or older Gen Xers, and they're being approached by young young millennials and even Gen Z. And they're even with kids and parents these days. There's a huge disconnect in communication, right? Like they feel very much empowered to be. You know, there are no there's no strata. Right. There's no I don't need to defer to the CEO as above or below me. We're all the same level, but enterprise clients don't operate that way. So if you're not giving them the protocols and respect that they need to, they're not going to respond to you. And so it's, 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 sometimes it's not about food at all. It's just about teaching interpersonal communication. That's just business. That's just understanding business, right? Yeah. Yeah. Are there some interesting, I don't want to go too far down this road, but I'm just kind of curious. Have you seen any kind of interesting tech that's coming out that could have a pretty big impact on restaurants? There's a lot of great tech out there. Um, Again, it's getting the restaurants to use it. It's, 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 there's a mismatch right now between old POS technology and integrations with new tech, right? So a lot of the older companies have gone all in on um, POS systems, like, NCR and uh, that don't necessarily play well with new tech integration. Like the Clover. I think that's one that I'm familiar with. Right. And so Toast, for example, a newer, newer POS is much more integrated with the new technologies that are out there, whether it's a labor management technology like Seven Shifts or a, um, you know, the virtual restaurant technology aggregators or any of them. And so an enterprise, it's for, for an enterprise restaurant, um, business to shift POS systems is a monumental change, right? It's, it's not an undertaking they're willing to do. Well, the risk is there too, as you roll this out across every store and everybody has to learn how to use it. And, right. you and know, they're stressed enough as it is just trying to keep them, keep them staffed. Yeah. And um, there's kinks and problems and tech and, and the restaurant people don't have the staff or the time to get on the phone with tech support when techs, you know, I, I liken it to back in the day when uh, I owned my restaurant and I was young and dumb and uh, we relied on credit cards a lot. And if the credit card machine was down, um, if you didn't have your swiper to take, you know, imprints of oh, credit wow. cards. So, so this is not a video. So just imagine the whole, this is going to take, some of us understand what you're, what you just visualize the whole, put the card down, put the. Um, what's the um, the chit the paper the paper? What's that uh, carbon, carbon copy, copy paper? Right? Yeah. Yeah. They don't even make that stuff anymore, right? Right. But if you could like bring it forward into this, it's oh well, the tech. You know, someone's trying to order for delivery at home at your restaurant, and all of a sudden, it's showing that the price is free, and people are putting in orders for steaks, and they're not being charged for them, but you still have to deliver them. Who at the peak of service is getting on the phone with the order aggregation or the third party delivery company to tell them that there's a problem happening right now? Like it's just there's so many headaches and problems mm-hmm. that, that are designed around the integration of these technologies working seamlessly together. And we're early days right now. How many company how many uh, franchise locations or company owned stores would you say need to be part of a of a restaurant group for you to consider an enterprise size? I personally, I think that's changing. I, I like in the restaurant space, I think it's, it's 300 and over. 
Some might argue and say it's 500 stores and more. Now, I'm putting you on the spot. You may not know the answer. Do you know how many enterprise restaurant companies exist in America? I don't. So there's 300. So you have to have 300 or more. And then that's, and I can't imagine there's There's a handful, right? I I would venture to guess it's less than 20. So when they get out of their comfort zone, that's really when they find that they need to start working with you or someone to help them. How do we integrate into all these new kind of technologies? Right. Um, All right. I've got a couple more questions for you as you know, people are kind of getting introduced to you and, and what you're and what you're great at doing. What would you say some of the top two or three common mistakes that you see are being made? Maybe with with rest, is it? I don't know. Should we focus on restaurants? That seems to be no. an area you have for food service. Common mis- That's so broad. I know it is. That's why um, I just ask it like that because uh, I didn't. I didn't want to be mistakes. too. I, we could segment into common mistakes in the virtual concept realm. Exactly. Common See, mistakes. I didn't want to be so narrow that I take away from some other ideas. So, okay, let's focus on virtual. Okay. Yeah. Well, the biggest mistake across the board is that they're looking at it from what's easiest and most operationally feasible for them to execute without putting on the lens of what the consumers actually want. Right. So there's your going back to you being able to see the whole thing just because it's easy doesn't mean you should be doing it. Right. Uh, Yeah. Some, yeah, there's things I could say and can't say about my last role. Um, So I'll keep it pretty generic. It's yes, please. There's supply chain constraints, right? When you're creating a a virtual concept that you want to expand beyond a small region, right? Like if you're, if you're XYZ virtual brand and you sell chicken sandwiches, right? Big, right. You need to make sure that the bun you're using on those chicken sandwiches is widely available at broadline distributors across the country, Right then that narrows you down to a small subset of types of buns you can use, right? Like Cisco, U.S. Foods, maybe Restaurant Depot only have a very small subset of buns that they carry across. There's their specialty that can be ordered regionally or if you have enough volume and convince them to buy enough across the country. But for the most part, let's say there's three different kinds of buns that are in distribution. You're creating a chicken sandwich brand you're you're only allowed to use these three kinds of buns. One of the buns is fine. Two of them are not holding up and testing, right? So now you have one bun that's available at the broadliners and it's fine. So you're automatically innovating and doing menu development with a less than wonderful bun option, for, which is, I would argue, one of the two components of a great chicken sandwich, right? It's the bread and the chicken. Chicken and the bun. Right. And so that's sort of how that happens. But the operator- You have to look all the way down the supply chain and understand yes. you know, the constraints. So that's one of the big issues is not understanding supply chain constraints. Not understanding right? so supply chain. And, and more of it is not understanding that just because it's operationally feasible doesn't mean that the consumer will want it or they'll try it once. And because you're already starting from mediocre- they're never ordering it again. Well, there we go again. This is one of the one of the the 
highlights of, of our of our show is different, better, and special. And if you have an average bun, you're already bun. You, you're already losing. You're already lost. Yep. You're already lost. Yep. Putting all this time, money into creating a virtual a virtual setup. Yep. Um, off cuff, are there other big big mistakes, common mistakes in setting up a virtual or ghost kitchen? There are a lot. Um, yeah. Um, when you're introducing a brand to consumers virtually that doesn't have a brick and mortar location, you're relying on two things. You're relying on the ability to get placement within the third party ordering app, right? So you're spending a lot of marketing dollars being shown on the banner on DoorDash. Uh, you're relying on promotions to get people to try it. And, and you're relying on your food photography being so craveable that people are willing to take the leap and order your chicken sandwich that they've never heard of versus you name the it. The brand right? that they already are comfortable with. <laughs> right? Or KFC or churches, right? And it's also a lot more expensive because now the restaurant who's creating the brand has is taking 40% and the virtual kitchen company is taking a percentage. And oh my God, the big, margins right? are, you're going to just crush you. So the margins are crazy and, and you're producing a subpar product to the end consumer. It's just, it just doesn't work, right? Like it just collapses in and on itself. So for virtual brands, I think what's happening is right. There's just a couple of things happening is that restaurants, I just read a stat that I think 47% of all restaurants already carry virtual brands of some sort now. Wait, say that stat again? 47, I think it was 47% of independent restaurants already offer virtual brands. So that means they're already opening their kitchens up to, for maximum expo, uh, maximum efficiency. Yes. And before, during the pandemic, when they were scrambling to onboard these virtual concepts to make an extra, you know, to make some incremental revenue, they didn't really care what those brands looked like, where they came from. As long as they fit into their operations, they were willing to try it. But I think they're starting to realize that operationally, it has a cost, even though you're using your incremental incremental labor and you're using your dark assets, uh, it still costs a lot. Your employees are angry because they're making food that they're not used to. Um, they're they're extra busy when perhaps you didn't expect that kind of pace. Um, and also, you know, you're focused on creating and packing up deliveries when perhaps you have a walking customer that you're ignoring. So there are costs, right, to doing it. And I think until that cost value equation works for them, and I don't think it will having to share it with third party um, or and then giving a cut to these virtual kitchen concept companies. Right. So a lot of them are getting smart. Look at what uh, Chick-fil-A has done. They've, they've started their own company. Uh, their own virtual brands that they're providing. They're sort of adjacent to their chicken philosophy. They have a salad. They have a, a chicken dinner. It's really a little blue menu. It's really great. Um, companies like Brinker doing their own concepts. So they own the concepts. They conceive of the concepts. They leverage their supply chain to make sure that they can provide value um, at the operational level that translates to the consumer. And they're now not having to pay, say, virtual dining concepts or next bite or any number of um, virtual concept companies that have spun up concepts during the peak of COVID. I've seen there's some other technologies that are coming out that are trying to compete with those third party apps that give yes. the power back to the restaurant. So they're not giving up those huge margins. 
Yes. And that, that's the other way, right? So either they're, they're going to do their own brands or they're going to direct to first party, spin up their own websites, use the flip dish, the B-Bot, the lunchbox of the world to create these consumer experiences that drive to their first party so they can own the information of the consumer. Not only are they making there you money, go. That's the right? key. See they right there. The you own it. Information for loyalty, repeat business, right. retargeting. Yes. For retargeting and messaging. But then if you think of the labor problems within restaurants and across the board, labor shortage in, in the country in general, then you need someone, right? You need a whole new department designed to track that first party site from, you know, order to spend, to repeat, to loyalty, to retargeting. So that opens up a whole other sort of business unit within your organization that you have to hire for. You can't just have a server who's rolling silverware, come back and manage your, your online delivery platform. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Can that integrate into like a CRM? Is that uh, kind of down that same path? Yes. There's a lot of companies working on that integration piece of loyalty. I know the, the companies I mentioned, Bebot, Flipdish, Lunchbox, offer sort of that comprehensive ecosystem from order to loyalty to retargeting to marketing that hopefully connects into their POS system. So they're not just tracking online orders, they're, they're tracking offline and on-premise so that it's a cohesive business as opposed to two separate units. Next, well, I guess it is next week, May 4th through May 6th, we have mm -hmm. the Food on Demand Conference in Las Vegas, and you're going to be one of the four panelists. I'm actually the moderator for three other panelists. I devised Maybe, a you know, I probably panel. just misread it. I was just looking at the the little video, I mean, the little yeah. picture, and it had you and there was um, a few other people that I actually – well, one of the guys has actually been on the podcast, uh, James oh, really? Walker from J James. Mm -hmm. Yeah, James. Well, he was he was on the podcast originally with um, Nathan's Famous, and then and then then with Bike before the, uh, of course, the horrific, yes, horrific situation that's happened for them. Well, if you refer back to the conversation in the beginning, where I'm sort of this holistic practitioner, right? I, I look at food, not just restaurant CPG, but I look at restaurant CPG grocery. To me, the lines have been blurring and will continue to blur to the point where um, food is just going to be, what are we having for food tonight? It's not It's it's not going to be, what restaurant are we going tonight? Is it, are we procuring from quick commerce? Are we getting grocery delivery? Is the grocery store bringing us a hot chicken? Is the restaurant bringing us a meal kit, right? It's all sort of blurring. And I, I'm, I'm kind of been geeking out over that for a long time. And I pitched uh, to Tom, uh, the editor at Food on Demand, I said, I want to do a panel uh, with a quick commerce company, with a traditional grocer, and with a C-store exec about the blurring lines between sort of assortment, what they're selling, how fast does it need to be, what's their perspective on bringing hot food and turning into sort of a grocerant, C-store restaurant, and then at some point at the next food on demand, do it from the other direction, right? Talk to restaurateurs about implementing quick commerce, right? Because it's all blurring together. It's blurring. Right. And Grocerant, so wait, wait, yeah. that, is, is that a word? Gross rot. Yes. It's it's even before COVID, it was when you would go to the grocery store and you It's like all the quick serve uh, stuff ready to go, right? Quick serve stuff. It was anything from quick serve stuff to the hot bar to yeah. procuring a meal at a at a grocery store as opposed to getting the ingredients to prepare a meal at the grocery store. 
So the Food on Demand conference will be in Vegas so people can stop by and register mm-hmm. and see you and the panelist. So this yep. was your brainchild. This panel is my brainchild. Yeah. Wow. And they liked it because it, you know, expands the thinking. It's not just a restaurant delivering food to the home. The, you know, opening up the aperture for delivery in general is, you know, you're going to get everything delivered, right? Well, everyone just got a little bit of a sneak peek into Food on Demand, the conference that's happening in Vegas, May 4th through May 6th. Liz, it's been fantastic. I'm glad that we got finally got a chance to meet. And I am sure we will have you back on again. We'll, we'll we'll bring on, we'll have, you know, some restaurant brands. We'll probably have some more food and beverage brands and we'll see how you can dissect them and figure out what they're doing right or wrong. And maybe um, it'll be very instructional for people. It'll be our version of Hell's Kitchen. That's my jam. I, I love, I love dissecting a good brand. Yeah. And, and figuring out how they can improve. Awesome. And people will kind of get an insight into that now. Do you have a, uh, other than your LinkedIn, do you have a, like a website that people can reach out to you if they are, you know, running a brand and they're running into some uh, areas that they're not very comfortable? What's the best way for people to reach out and, and try to work with you individually? Yeah, my LinkedIn is, is my best interface. I am on there. I post, I committed to posting daily and I will respond to all messages, valid or invalid. I will tell you it is not valid. I will not ghost you. Uh, so if you have an interesting commentary or you want to connect, do so through LinkedIn. Oh, you just said you will not ghost. I mean, I literally, I am personally trying to hire another recruiter for my team. I had a recruiter reach out to me and say they were interested. They wanted to talk to me. They 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 heard I was hiring. I said, absolutely. I sent them my Calendly invite. They booked an appointment with me to talk to me. Yeah. Gone. Well, Didn't like show said, up for the meeting. It's no rampant. Re- what it's the rampant. hell? You know, I think. I mean, this thing, this ghosting is a thing. It's a thing. And I think people have lost the art of humanness and understanding and most of all hospitality. And uh, it, it makes me very angry when people do it to me. And so I have a personal philosophy where every person is worthy of a reply, even if it's just a short, not interested exclamation point. Right. And, and, and that I'm is sorry, why I missed our appointment. I forgot. I don't care. Just tell me right. something. Even if you're not an apologizer, just. I acknowledge we admit I missed our appointment. I'll be in touch or sorry, something's come up and I'm no longer interested. It takes no time to do. And I, it, it's my, it's my big pet peeve. And so I, I promise. That's that a I pet peeve. Respond. My other pet peeve is when I watch people walk through the grocery store, pushing a cart all over the place, they push oh, it out fun. to their car and that's it. I can't take it any further. That's it. Where's the first median? My wife and I literally do monologues on this. Like, here we go. Forget it. I've I've already walked six miles today. I cannot go another hundred feet. I'm done. Don't do it. Can't do it. Can't right? do it. I'm just going to just shove it. Just put it right here. Or they're real close to the bank. And then instead of walking the extra five steps, they, do yeah. they shove it. Like, and then it goes, have you seen that? That's oh, my favorite. Yeah. It goes into a car. That's... We just couldn't walk the extra five uh, steps. So yeah. we'll do pet peeves our next one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Liz, wonderful to talk to you. Have a great weekend and a great session out at your conference next week. Thanks, Tony. 
You're very welcome. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye.